Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is Bill Press and Friends on the District Productive Network. Donald Trump, um, in his characteristic way, took to Twitter to make an outrageous and explosive claim that President Obama ordered his phones to be wiretapped in Trump Tower prior to the election. He called the former president a quote-unquote bad or sick guy. Um, also, of course, is the fact that Republicans in Congress have no idea what to do about Donald Trump's claims. Never, We've never been down this road before, right, Peter? No! Uh, well, Mitch McConnell said he has seen no evidence that any such wiretapping occurred. Same goes for Devin Nunes, who is the chair of the House Intelligence Committee tasked with investigating Russian interference in the U.S. election, which, of course, is the basis for all of the drama surrounding uh, the wiretapping issue. It's, It's because there's, again, more scrutiny over potential links between associates of Donald Trump and Russian operatives that he levied the this unsubstantiated wiretapping claim against Obama. And Devin Nunes, I was on Capitol Hill, Peter, yesterday, mm-hmm. uh, provided a press, a weekly update on their investigation. Uh, one newsy item was that the first public hearing on the House Intelligence Committee's uh, investigation into Russia will be on Monday, March 20th. And uh, among the people invited to testify are... James Comey, the director of the FBI, former director of national intelligence, James Clapper, Sally Yates, the former um, acting <clears throat> attorney general under Obama, who was fired when she would not Hero. When, when she said she would not defend uh, Donald Trump's tr- initial travel ban. Uh, but but when the wiretapping issue came up, Devin Nunes decided to offer a very familiar line to us reporters chastising the media for reading into what Donald Trump says and does. Uh, the president uh, is a neophyte to politics. He's been doing this a little over a year. And I think a lot of the things that uh, he says, uh, you guys uh, sometimes uh, take uh, literally. We take him too literally. This, I have to say, like, this drives me crazier than anything that Donald Trump has said, right? Which he said a lot of really terrible, horrible things, I I think. But we knew that about Donald Trump. Like, we voted in a guy who belittled a, a man with a disability. He admitted to sexually assaulting women. He talked about Mexicans as being rapists and murderers. He said some horrible, horrible things. We knew what we were getting when we, as a country, voted for Donald Trump, mm-hmm. right? But the worst part of all of this are these Republicans 
who are going to just turn their backs and say, oh, well, y'all can't believe every word that comes out of his mouth because that's the reason that he's president. Right. There's like all these Republicans or members of the media who are like, oh, isn't this fun to watch? Isn't this funny to watch people just freak out? Look at our ratings go up. Look at our uh, approval ratings go up as they rise with Donald Trump. Uh, and like... This is why we're in this friggin' mess to begin with is because of dopes like this guy who, like, <sighs> is just apologizing for this bad behavior. It drives me crazy. Right. And I think that the even more bizarre part about the statement that Devin Nunes made yesterday is that just a couple hours before, Sean Spicer, speaking to reporters from the White House, said, oh, no. Donald Trump meant exactly what he said. Um, Do take it literally that he believes that the former president wiretapped his phones. Um, Having said that, faced with questions about, you know, evidence as well as why call on Congress to investigate, um, Sean Spicer had this to say of the questions being asked by reporters. Do you believe that President Obama? I, you know, like I, I, I get that that's a cute question to ask. My job is to represent the president uh, and to talk about what he's doing and what he wants. Such a cute little question. God, I hate that guy. <laughs> I hate, I think he's a, just the lowest form of dog S that anybody's ever stepped on. So Sean Spicer, um, I think, is in this familiar position of that he signed up for. So when I say that, I don't mean it to sympathize, just he signed up for having to defend claims that are rooted in absolutely no evidence um, and fall back on this notion that you have a president who is unhinged or becomes unhinged the moment the scrutiny rises to a certain level. Uh, So it's, it's, again, the situation where someone's asking him, well, do you think that Obama wiretapped his phone and it's oh well that's a cute question it's not dissimilar to very early on in his very initial briefings he was asked about donald trump's insistence falsely that millions of illegal votes were cast in the election and it was again i'm going to let the president's words speak for themselves instead of i have i i can't support this claim but the president clearly believes it's true um I guess it's just the alternative facts White House. That's what it is. Yeah, I mean, look, this is the reality that we're in right now is that Donald Trump, who I think at best is a senile old man, uh, is just making these wild claims. And his White House can't support them. We saw, I mean, it was Saturday morning, very early, that all the wiretapping allegations came out on on Trump's Twitter feed. And then on the Sunday shows, they put out Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Yeah. Who was saying like, oh, well, if this happened, or, and they, and and people were just having to say like, what do you mean Mar- if? Martha Raddatz. Martha Raddatz was like, what do you mean CBS, if? If if if. What do you mean if? He's saying if. Yeah, like th- this is the guy you speak for, right. and you, you don't even know if it's true or not. Right. Like, what are you doing? And she, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, almost almost explicitly said that she cannot really speak for the president in a sense that she doesn't know. Uh, what it is exactly that he's that he's ta- referring to. Uh, so you have a White House that can't speak for its own president. Um, 
And it's not just another claim Donald Trump made because he is accusing his predecessor of breaking the law. I think there's a lot of people who don't understand, and I'm going to break it down, exactly how this would have worked. So we know that during the course of the election, the intelligence community had reason to believe and began to investigate whether or not the Russian government was trying to interfere with the presidential election, the U.S. election more broadly, uh, of course, stemming from the hacking of the Democratic National Committee email server, as well as the emails of John Podesta, the former Clinton uh, campaign manager and I chairman. And of course, the the idea here is, well, the hacking was all one sided. Mm. So was this actually an effort to help elect Donald Trump? Now, if at any point there was going to be a warrant sought to engage in any kind of bugging of phones, it would not come from Obama. I mean, that would be explicitly breaking the law. This was an independent investigation ha- taking place within the Justice Department. So the Department of Justice would have had to go seeking a warrant from the elusive FISA court, and then they would have had to grant that warrant to the DOJ. All of this would be happening independent of the president because the investigation is itself independent yeah. of the White House. And by the way, if they did grant that warrant, because this court is, you know, a secretive court that keeps itself, of course, suffice it to say, out of politics. If they granted that warrant, they would only do so because they had probable cause to believe that Donald Trump or his associates are acting as a foreign agent. Yeah. So in a way, it's kind of bizarre because by asking Congress to investigate this, Donald Trump is almost legitimizing the idea right. that there's something wrong. Now, it's right. important to know that there is no evidence of wrongdoing, any clear evidence, but there's been a series of cases now where affiliates of Donald Trump, people who worked on his campaign, first it was his former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, then it was Jeff Sessions, who was one of his top surrogates, and is, of course, now the attorney general, Carter Page, an informal, informal foreign policy advisor. They've all admitted to meeting with the ambassador, the the Russian ambassador to the United States after initially saying they did not or being misleading about whether or not they met with the Russian ambassador. So it also just began with not being forthcoming about meetings that did in fact take place. The Republican plan to repeal and replace Obamacare. Six years in the making, but really something that was just crafted over the past few weeks. Perhaps since they haven't been able to really coalesce around an alternative. Breaking it down for us is staff writer for The Atlantic, Van Newkirk II. Hello, good morning. Good morning. And you can follow him on Twitter at Five Fifths, as well as read his work online at theatlantic.com. Now, Van, you uh, read the Republican healthcare Bill and wrote an article over the Atlantic called "Is the Republican Plan Obamacare Light?" Now, Obamacare Light is also what conservatives are referring to this proposal as, because there is a fair amount of conservative opposition that is already mounted against. Um, well, this is 
you know, a plan that's been backed by House Republican leaders. So can you tell us where that phrase comes from? Is this plan, in fact, Obamacare light? Uh, it's not Obamacare light at all. Let, let's start there. And it comes from um, uh, mostly opposition to the fact that it still has a tax credit for purchasing insurance for people. Um, it's actually a tax credit that does pretty well for middle class folks, but not as well, nowhere near as, as well as the Obamacare's tax credits for low income and poor folks. And, you know, that, that's a, a fun way to do it, right? This whole thing. And it's a lot easier to read than the ACA because it's shorter as they made a big show of yesterday, you know. They love showing stacks of paper against each other, Uh, but that's because most of it just edits. It's a line edit of the ACA, most of it. Um, And what it really does is takes away coverage and money, weird that you can do that at the same time, from low-income and poor people and gives it to rich people, which is fun. You you know, the, the, (laughs) the most significant way in which the Affordable Care Act, uh, Obamacare as it is commonly known, uh, helped to provide access to low-income individuals and families was through the expansion of Medicaid. Now, this plan, the Republican plan, uh, as you write, would roll back the Medicaid expansion. So what is the proposal then or the provision within this bill um, that would try and provide health care to the to low income families or individuals. I'm not sure there really is one. So so it, it would roll back the expansion, um, but it would not it lets those people stay on Medicaid, the expanded population, but they don't get the uh, enhanced federal funding that they would now. Mm-hmm. And so basically they're saying the states, you're on your own kind of. Um, you're going back to fifty fifty state and federal funding and my guess is that states, lots of states who expanded where people needed the most are probably going to say, okay, no, we're not doing that again. Um, the only other real sort of replacement there that they have for people, the 10 or so million people who are projected, that's a low end, uh, to lose coverage is a tax credit. And it's unclear how a two to $4,000 tax credit is going to help people in markets where the average premiums per year Five, six, seven thousand dollars. You know the the point you raised about the states with respect to Medicaid is is interesting because it's not just Democrats in terms of governors across the country who expanded Medicaid. There are Republicans who acquiesced as well. I mean, there are also many Republican-led states where they pointedly refused to adopt the Medicaid expansion. But you know, even John Kasich. The governor of Ohio, who ran for the Republican nomination unsuccessfully, uh, no, maybe perhaps in part because of this, <laughs> but you know he's been a very vocal proponent of keeping in place uh, the Medicaid expansion under Obamacare. So, what are the? I know that this was scored by the congressional, uh, or was it scored by the congressional budget? It hasn't been. No. I think there was more, maybe perhaps a prediction about how many people roughly would lose health care. Um, so, so I guess I mean I know I'm not going to put put you to any specific numbers, but there are more than 22 million people on Obamacare, um, and it doesn't seem as though, at least based on the early indicators, that this plan would just keep in place their their health care, would it? So I guess it's more yeah, of a phase yeah. in, right? It wouldn't go in effect immediately. It wouldn't go. So these things all sunset and are phased in 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 a way to make the CBO scoring look as good as possible, right? Mm-hmm. 
so the taxes are repealed. They, they give them a year to repeal them so the it doesn't use lose all this revenue stuff right away. Um, the The numbers we have come from a couple consultancies that have been doing the analysis here. And I think the range um, is somewhere between 9 to about 14 million people who will lose insurance. And that's, you know, taking back from that 20 million who gained mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. So I guess one basis for calling this Obamacare light is the fact that there's a net of 6 million people who do have insurance over <laughs> before Obamacare. <laughs> well, here's here's what that I really honestly wrestle with, right? Because I was watching uh, Louis Gohmert and, and Mark Meadows sort of complaining about this bill. What do they want? What is their goal? When you look at people who think that this is too much like Obamacare and you look at the Freedom Caucus, you look at what do they want? Do they just want these people who didn't have well, health care before to just go back to having nothing? What do we hear from Rand Paul, who yesterday on Capitol Hill led a press conference in direct opposition to this bill? We are united on repeal, but we are divided on replacement. What's the best way to get past this impasse? Let's vote on what we voted on before, a clean repeal. Let's separate out the replacement plans. <laughs> Let's repeal and address uh, to replace later uh, because they don't have um, a replacement plan. Notably, actually, Marco Rubio uh, told reporters on Capitol Hill when he was asked directly what would it take for Republicans to coalesce around a health care plan he said, and I quote, if I figure that out, I'd run this place. So yeah. so what will it take, Van, for Republicans to go less around a health care alternative? Well, it's fun, Paul, taking this stance that, you know, he's basically fine with 20 million or so people losing coverage right away. Yeah. So that's his thing. But if he does that, his constituents, you know, is he getting reelected if he takes away coverage from people in the wor- some of the worst health conditions in the country, that I don't know about that. Um, it, it's it's really rough. It's really rough. Yeah, and, and like <laughs> the, I mean, this is going to be a really interesting test because uh, Rand Paul is very popular uh, in Kentucky. He won his election overwhelmingly, and we know <laughs> that Kentuckians uh, are relying on this stuff in a big way, in a, in a way than a lot of other states, frankly. It's actually interesting. A lot of the big voices against Obamacare come from states that begged for Obamacare. Yeah. Our vice president, actually, and, and our soon-to-be administrator of the CMS, Indiana, <laughs> <laughs> expanded Medicaid. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's really interesting seeing that dynamic, and that's because, and we know this, the places where Republicans run the country are the worst places to live for health care. Hey, everybody, this is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. We have Congressman Josh Gottheimer. I can say, I've got it. You've got down, it. Got it down. 
Representative New Jersey's 5th District, and we can also follow on Twitter at Rep. Josh G. One of the big items of news that has emerged this week is that your colleagues, your Republican colleagues, have finally unveiled a proposal to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. Um, tell us a little bit about what you make of this of their plan. Well, first, you know, we're just finding out all the details like everyone else. And there's, you know, you could do things at a high level. And then, of course, you got to peel down to really understand. And we're, we're, we have not been involved in the process, as mm-hmm. you know, the Democrats haven't. And uh, we also don't know. CBO hasn't scored this. We don't know what any of this is going to cost. We don't know exactly how many people it's going to cover. Um, so all I see is what we're all reading without the details you'd like to see. Um, I came at this thing from the beginning when I ran for office that we need to fix Obamacare, and sort of as if as President Obama said in his last week, if you got better ideas, let's fix it. There's plenty that can be tweaked with that bill, but the idea that we're going to do this in the dark of night without a, without a, without it doing it in a collaborative way to me makes no sense. You know, I'm uh, as you probably know more of a moderate guy, and my feeling is you, the way you're going to solve problems is that you work together, and mm-hmm. the fact is they this was locked in some sort of basement in the Capitol. Uh, until a few hours ago when we decided to unveil this thing, and they're going to jam it through. That's at least my understanding. So I, I, it's the parts of it that I'm most worried about off the top is what does this mean in terms of Medicaid for the states? Like actually, how is this practically going to work? What does this mean for seniors, um, prescription drug costs? You know, if you tear you know, the donut hole, it's, it's very unclear in the details there in terms of where this will ultimately go. And if, what does this mean for prescription drug costs for, for seniors, people in nursing homes, um, and and who's going to get covered ultimately? What's this going to mean for their pocketbook? And so there are a lot of questions that I really want to know the answers to, and and I'm very very eager to get some. Now this this plan also wants to would seek to defund Planned Parenthood, and uh, go so far as also barring uh, Medicaid funding to pro- providers who offer abortion services. Is are those kind of Attempts um, well, to make appeal- this thing ideological by mm-hmm. jamming in and taking away women's health care uh, and and a woman's right to choose uh, as part of what they instead of solving a broader problem here that we need to solve to me just tells you that this is where they're coming from, which is why you're seeing I think so many pockets of opposition, not just obviously the Republicans are fighting with themselves mostly at this point, right um, um, you saw yesterday with the Freedom caucus and then of course the speaker and they're disagreeing on their end. but then you see the Senate. Several senators came up and said this thing's dead on arrival. So and part of the reason we are hearing from a lot of people is why, why are you going after women's health care? Like, mm. Why aren't you trying to solve problems instead of jam through something extreme and ideological? Uh, and I'll tell you, somebody who wants to actually sit at a table and figure out how to make things better, this is not the way to go at it. Let me ask you a question because I, I, we talked about this in the last hour. And I, I honestly, truly can't get a straight answer on, on this question. The Republicans who don't like the Affordable Care Act and then the Republicans who don't even like – that call this new Republican plan Obamacare, Obamacare 2.0 <laughs> or Obamacare Light or whatever, what do they want? What is their goal? Like if they had their way, what would that plan look like? Would it just be going back to where those 20 million people didn't have health care? But that's the grand question, right? I mean seven years you had complaining about something. My grandfather used to always say – you know, complain with a solution. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's easy to complain. Everyone can do that. But you actually have ideas. And the problem is, right, the, they're now rushing, it seems like, to come up with ideas. 
But instead of having a baked process of saying, okay, here's what we've been thinking about for seven years. Here's what will make sense. Here's how we cover more people. Here's how we make this more affordable. Here's how we deal with deductibles. Here's how in my, in my state, you've got me, a lot of medical device taxes really hurts us. You've got the Cadillac tax. You've got other provisions that clearly need fixing, in my opinion. But so then take them on. Let's talk about the issues. Yeah. Instead, jamming something through that, to your point, doesn't actually deal with the problem. Doesn't address anything. No. Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican from South Carolina, said this weekend he thinks that Paul Ryan uh, and Republican leadership in the House should slow it down a little bit, as you're saying they're trying to jam something through. Now, I know you don't exactly uh, engage with the other side in terms of uh, counting votes, but... Uh, do you think that this bill would pass if uh, the speaker brought it up on the floor, on the House floor? Well, I, I, that's a good thing. I don't count votes on their side because <laughs> it's not my job. But but you see that there's a lot of division on their side, right? We saw yesterday in the press conferences, there's clearly the Freedom Caucus has an opinion and then uh, uh, leadership has another opinion. And I think that's going to that means votes, right? Especially because I don't know where the Democrat, all the Democrats are going to be on this at this point, especially without the details. And especially if we go after seniors and uh, and don't address how many people and what's going to cost, right? Mm-hmm. So right now, if you had to do a vote, I think they'd have a really hard time. You know, that, That's actually why, if I were them, I'd sit down with some Democrats, mm-hmm. right? I I, um, I co-lead this group called the Problem Solvers Caucus, which is 20 Democrats and 20 Republicans, built so that we could sit down and talk about, mm-hmm. and we could talk about, okay, can we make something that makes sense for our people? That, if I were them, given how they complained for, what, seven years that this thing was jammed through in the dark of night without, even though it was months, months and months long process, um, uh, why aren't we talking about that? Mm-hmm. So, you know, obviously you said that you, you agree there are some reforms that should be made to the health care law. But is it fair to say that any plan that repeals Obamacare is a non-starter with someone like yourself and members of your party? You know, something like me, where if they repeal it without a, solu- a smart solution in place, that won't work because mm-hmm. you can't just throw something out. Right. It, it, it would devastate a state like mine. It would throw you know, hundreds of thousands of people off their care. It would devastate seniors. It would hurt people in nursing homes. The hospitals I speak to, the doctors I speak to, uh, all the companies involved in the ecosystem, and you know, of course, the patients and the people, they all want a solution. They say, okay, of course things can be better. Come to me. What's the solution? And throwing this thing out like the, the Freedom Caucus is proposing without an idea in place is a non-starter. You can't do that. So what are some of the reforms that you believe need to be made to Obamacare in its current form? Well, as I said a minute ago, I think the Cadillac tax provision uh, and the medical device Mm -hmm. tax uh, provision in the current legislation uh, hurts companies. It it hurts hurts R&D and innovation in our country. So those are areas where... I want fixing. Also, the deductible right now, as you have it, you have the deductibles are simply too high for too many people who are on the ACA, right? So they can't afford, they can barely afford the monthly, and then they are not going and getting their care because the deductibles are just way high. So there's there's there are areas that need fixing, and but but you look at what they what they like about it, the 26 year old provision, right? Obviously great for great for our country and great for healthcare. The pre-existing condition, so that right, if you have a pre-existing condition, you can still get health care. That's a, a huge change and a very important change. And they also want to keep that. I was sitting next to somebody last week around people during the speech, and when he was when when President Trump was ticking through, you know, his principles of what had to be an replacement bill, I, I looked around. I said, "Well, that sounds like largely what we have right now." Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was a little ironic.
Our final guest has joined us live in studio, Fez Shakir, the National Political Director of the American Civil Liberties Union. Good morning, Fez. Hi, Sabrina. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Good. Thank you. So can you talk about, because you know, you're, with respect to your organization, just the sheer volume of um, attention. I think there's been obviously a lot of open calls for fundraising. Uh, what do you, how do you see the mission as you know, changing and impacted by this incoming, or not incoming, this new administration? The major change is that the ACLU needs to become a grassroots organization. And so this Saturday, actually, we're hold, holding a major town hall in Miami, Florida. Uh, we've got 2,000 house parties across the nation lined up to watch this live stream of that uh, event. And what we're going to do at that is try to lay out a concrete plan about how people in their local communities can resist the Trump agenda. I would love to tell you exactly what that is, but I have to tell some of my ACLU members first. Uh, before I roll it out on radio. But I will tell you that it, it will be a specific and concrete plan that I don't think you've heard before about how to resist Trump that I, I think will end up being effective. So Saturday, 5 p.m., if people want to watch it, I urge you all to do so. That's actually a really, really uh, powerful point because everybody talks about resist. That's the thing yeah. now, resist, resist. But it works. Yeah. It's shown that it is working. When you show up to these town halls and you let your elected officials know exactly how you feel, when when you call your elected officials' office and let them know, I mean, they can't get work done because their phones are so right. and full. They're all talking about it. They, they're paying attention. Oh, yeah. They know. Uh, and you remember, uh, on the legal side, the airport protests themselves were yeah. so critical uh, our legal director, David Cole, told me the night after the airport protest that it was hugely instrumental in impacting the way the judges were ruling because they saw the impetus, the need to do something, and they knew which way to rule because That's people were demanding Yeah, That's fascinating. I mean, there was absolute chaos, and I think yeah. that that was— also, just a testament to the fact that, you know, this is an administration that's writing policy on the fly. Right. I mean, you have a 31-year-old speechwriter, Stephen Miller, who mm. was uh, <laughs> the one who wrote that first travel ban under, of course, the stewardship of Steve Bannon, the co-chief of staff in the White House. And uh, now this second version was, uh, they say, the product of an inter more of an interagency um, process, yeah. which, of course included, you know, Homeland Security Secretary John Kelly and uh, Rex Tillerson was the Secretary of State, was was there to roll it out, as was, of course, you mentioned Jeff Sessions, the yeah. Attorney General, but they didn't take any questions. Yeah. I mean, is, they ran from is the this mics. just, <laughs> is it your sense that, they, that this administration doesn't actually believe that this, even this revised travel ban will stand? It's more that Donald Trump Will, will not back down, right. so they have to kind of come up with something. Right. I think that uh, the the reasonable people, to the extent there are any in the administration, I think would argue that they should just scrap this, table it, and uh, and and just put it aside. I mean, the 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 major issue here is it's not even needed, right? We don't need this because we have a tremendous vetting system already in place. And so the more you're trying to layer on, uh, you know, six countries with specific requirements of those countries, we know what you're trying to do. We're not fools. We're not idiots. It's a Muslim ban. You know, it's a Muslim ban. Uh, you know, it, it's, you know, it can't be um, said enough that the U.S. has uh, one of, if not the most strict vetting process for refugees, screening process. It takes, you know, roughly two years 
uh, certainly with respect to Syrian refugees, uh, to, to come here to, to clear all of the hurdles in place. And also, you know, on the point of these six countries, um, and they took Iraq off the list because, of course, the national security community, you know, once you talk to those sensible people you mentioned, point out, well, you know, you have uh, you, the cooperation uh, from, you know, the Iraqi government forces on the ground in terms of, you know, this global war against terrorism. But I want to move away from that for a moment to say there's this Department of Homeland Security memo. Mm-hmm. Now, um, that's been widely reported on in the press. And it found actually that, you know, individuals from the seven countries in, included in the in the initial ban and still six countries in the second are rarely implicated in U.S.-related terrorism right. activity. Right. And that radicalization, to the extent it happens, only happens when people come here. And, you know, it doesn't come from this country of origin. So, you know, I, I've talked to our lawyers about that. They think it's almost certain that that memo that was leaked, I think, to Maddow, Rachel Maddow first, mm-hmm. was will almost certainly be um, inserted into a legal case uh, and that you'll see it come up in a court of law. Yeah. And I think that they were trying to, the administration, push back in some way. So they made it a point, Jeff Sessions, to state um on monday that well you know we've opened up 300 inquiries into refugees um related to counterterrorism but you know they would not when asked identify where those individuals came from in terms of countries if they even come from the countries that are part of this ban not to mention opening up a counterterrorism investigation is something that happens all the time and many you know there's you don't really need much um, proof of any activity, and oftentimes in the majority of cases, it doesn't really yield a more serious investigation. Yeah, well, and I saw the Washington Post fact checker called that false. So um, mm-hmm. I think that yeah, you know, there's a lot of mythology that they want to spew about Muslims. I mean, the whole uh, the whole campaign of Islamophobia is based off mythology. You know, the idea that there's creeping Sharia in America and that they're going to take over and impose some kind of imam or something. Mm. I, it, it, if you listen to the right wing talk about Muslims in America, it is it is steeped in all kinds of myths about who Muslims are, how they practice, what they do. And that mythology, unfortunately, is now affecting policymaking. And it's very damaging and disastrous. I mean, when you when you have most Americans who don't know a Muslim or haven't interacted with a Muslim in the, over the past year, according to most surveys, then they're susceptible to myths. And you have a right-wing echo chamber who uh, is now controlling the president of the United States uh, and spewing all kinds of falsehoods. And so, unfortunately, those who don't have a Muslim friend or neighbor believe a lot of false things. That's such a such a such an interesting point and such an important point because, like, you look at the whole uh, movement that was to paint Barack Obama as a Muslim, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And, like, even up until the very end of his presidency, I still had people, usually family members on Facebook, who would say, but he's a Muslim, but he's a Muslim, but he's a Muslim. And it's like, okay, well, first of all, he's said that he isn't, number one, but second of all, who who cares? As Colin Powell said, even if he was. Even if he was a Muslim, <laughs> who cares? Right. So it's like right. calling someone a Muslim does not mean that they are a terrorist. That, so you, you reference one myth, which is that Obama's a Muslim. Think of all the others, the right. Ground Zero Mosque, right. Right. Huma Abedin yeah. is a terrorist on behalf of uh, Hillary Clinton, the smears against Keith Ellison. I mean, you could just go down, the, all the various Muslims protests. Muslims were celebrating on the roof 
yes. 9-11. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All, uh, there's yeah. so many things that the right has just spewed about Muslims that has been so damaging to our discourse and unfortunately has affected uh, some of the way the nation thinks but about it. But I think that, you know, the point you raised um, about Donald Trump's own statements is critical to this, too, because I remember when I was talking to uh, actually one of uh, your lawyers at the ACLU for a story um, that had to do with, you know, what if they pursue some kind of registry or database? What if they bring back NCERS, the program under the Bush administration that was, for all intents and purposes, a, a registry targeted at Muslims? The the lawyer said that the the distinction here, which couldn't be done in a previous administration, is you actually have a president who has made very clear what his intentions are with respect to an entire group of people. Yeah, uh, and, and it's important, I think, to note that like some of the Islamophobes that um, I think had been losing influence uh, over the past few years, people like Frank Gaffney. Pamela uh, Geller. Pamela Geller, you know, Daniel Pipes, uh, Robert Spencer. They're now back in charge. Yeah. You know, they're the ones who have a great deal of influence. Like, like you, we saw that General McMasters, who's the national security advisor to the president of the United States, is urging him not to use uh, Islamic terrorism as a phrase. Yeah. What does Radical Donald Islam. Trump? Yeah. yeah. What does Donald Trump go and do at the joint address before Congress? He uses the exact phrase that his own national security advisor is urging him not to use. Uh, it, you know, th- clearly, national security people are not in charge of this president. Who is? <laughs> yeah, right. right. So, Who is? I, I think that's pretty clear, yeah. yeah. So we talk about the travel ban and, and civil civil rights, especially as they pertain to Muslims. Uh, what, what are some of the other key issues that you feel um, the ACLU will be dealing with as Donald Trump begins to enact policy and his so there, there's a whole I mean I could just go down the for the next half hour but like the Affordable Care Act is a big issue for us right it was what one of people people don't realize is it's one of the most um, effective pieces of legislation in reducing discrimination in our society and making us more equal the fact that they're about to kick off millions of people from health coverage is a discrimination issue. It's a it's an inequality issue for us at the ACLU. It's gonna there there's a tax on Planned Parenthood. There's a tax on contraception coverage, abortion coverage. We're going to fight out, fight that tooth and nail. Then we've got cases on transgender protections mm. for all of us. You know, we've got cases on a whole variety of issues, including deportation raids, right? That are that we're seeing across the across the country. So our docket is full. Donald Trump is essentially trolling the ACLU nonstop. (laughs) Question facing Democrats is, do you work with this president at all? Or does working with him legitimize, you know, all of the issues that we just talked about? Well, I I was proud to work for Harry Reid. And at the end, if you remember, he was uh, warning us that Steve Bannon was not somebody we should trust. We should fight this guy at every turn. Uh, that Russia was a major issue. He was he was sending all kinds of warning signals left and right about uh, that we needed to pursue Russia as an investigation. And I think that there was an inclination on behalf of some of Democrats to to, to try to work with the president and at least indicate an open open hand to reaching some kind of compromise on you know cabinet secretaries or infrastructure bills. And I think. Harry Reid was clear-minded and clear-eyed about what needed to be done, which is there is no working with the president who will not uh, uh, make any effort at reconciliation. If he's not going to apologize for the hate-filled manner in which he campaigned, if he's not going to back off the policies that uh, lead to deportation, that lead to a Muslim ban, then there's just simply no working for him. It has to be a first-order priority that we have to back this individual, the president of the United States, off of the worst impulses he has, and then we can talk about working together. 
I think you're right, man. I, that, that is absolutely right. And I think Harry, Harry Reid was way ahead of the curve on that one. He saw this coming, and he like you can't work with the bad guys when they continue to be bad guys. Right. Right. right? Like I, I, Again, I come back to this John Kelly thing. There were a lot of Democrats who lined up and voted for him and said this is going to be a good, a good factor for Trump. He's going to be a good influence on Trump. And he's out there saying stuff like this. Harry Reid wouldn't have voted for that guy. No, <laughs> no, I. You know I'm right. I had, well, you I had a number I'm of right. conversations with. <laughs> what, is he, what is he up to these days? So before we he's go, all, just on a lighter note, what what's I would he doing? say is he's he's watching things keenly and closely. I think there's many times he would love to speak out and say, <laughs> but he's promised that you know he'll recede into the background. But I tell you what, he is fired you he, up. <laughs> do, you think he, do you think he's looking at this and he's kind of regretting getting out of the game? Uh, you know, Harry's a fighter, I, and he's a pugilist <laughs> by nature. He was he is ready to get in the ring with these guys. And and I think he would be hungry to do so. And so, yeah, it's, it's tough for him. I, I, I bet. Well, you keep doing all of the great work that you guys are doing. And uh, everyone, don't forget to, of course, follow uh, Fez on Twitter at F Shakir. You can, of course, check out the work at ACLU.org. Thank you so much for joining us Thanks, this morning. Peter. And Thanks, thank you, Peter. everyone Thanks, who tuned in to this show. We'll be back tomorrow. So stay tuned. This is the Bill Press Show. Have you ever wondered how to say good morning in Italian? Or what is goodbye in French? You can ask Alexa. Just say, what is happy birthday in German? Or how do you say hello in Japanese? Do you want to know how to say I love you in Spanish? Ask Alexa and start learning a new language today.